Hi, and welcome to the Freudcast. You can't really talk about health these days without the word tech following immediately after. But depending on who you talk to, health tech will either be a panacea or Pandora's box. For every solution provided by the likes of artificial intelligence, new questions are raised about patient data and the like. Freud's hosted a panel of experts to discuss where health tech is taking us, what it can do for our national health service, and who else is leading the way. Hi Matt, I'm Ben Moody and I lead on health and local public services at Tech UK. We're a trade body representing the tech sector. My name is Neva McKenna, I look after Accenture's health practice here in the UK. So I'm Sam Shaw, I'm a digital health technology advisor and I'm a clinician in the NHS and I was previously the director of digital development for NHS X. What are the big themes at the moment in tech and health? I think the biggest one in in health in in a UK setting has to be around cost, essentially. So I think it's widely recognised that the NHS and England in particular, we're we're a laggard. But also when you look at other areas of the English economy, it's almost the last part where, you know, 90% of people still queue up or getting an engaged dial tone when they're trying to book a GP appointment. It makes absolutely no sense. There are very few things you would do where you physically have to queue up. The biggest one for me, the the simple low-hanging fruit of that world is around simple efficiencies that aren't necessarily what you would think of as medical or health tech. At the other end of the scale, so not about the basics, The buzzwords of the moment really are AI and genomics, or at least the buzzwords that have substance behind them. Um, And some of our member companies are doing fantastic things in both of those areas um, that, you know, in a longer time frame uh, could truly revolutionise the way that we consume healthcare services in this country. I think the really exciting area at the moment is the fact that we're going from what people thought of as digital technology to post-digital technology. So what do I mean by that? Well, we've had the internet era and lots of people have been using the internet to make a difference in society across lots of verticals. But if we take healthcare, we're now seeing the combination of the physical world and virtual world coming together and the adoption of future technology. So we're beginning to now see the use of AI in clinical settings. We're beginning to see what could happen in a citizen-facing environment where we combine the use of medical technology, medicines and digital health. So a good example of that would be the management of diabetes. People have apps now to remind them when to eat, what to eat, as well as their status in terms of their blood sugar levels. And then if we combine that then with the sort of technology that also then pumps insulin and you start beginning to get that blend between digital health, medical technology and medicine itself. The thing that's really everybody's really struggling with is scale. How do you get it from an idea or proof of concept which looks good in a lab environment or in a very small scale? How do you get that to actually work for a huge workforce, a big government department, uh, you know, something the size of the NHS? And that issue of scale is something that everyone's really struggling with. Scale as well, I'd imagine, in terms of people trusting it. They'll trust a doctor, they'll trust a a healthcare professional, but trusting a a computer or a robot, perhaps, in the not-too-distant future? There's two schools of thought on that, actually. So, in, in some ways, yes, I think there's a big trust conversation to be had about data. However, there's a really interesting set of results, and you see some good data where actually people are more comfortable having certain conversations with a robot. 
And um, I think of an example, a pretty pretty trivial one, but in a DIY retailer in the US where they had a sort of a, a little robot going round and you could ask the robot questions in their store. People wanted it to look and sound like a robot. They actually had to change it to make it less real because they were like, we know it's a robot. We want it to be a robot. There have also been other studies that say, you know, certain health conditions, people may not feel that comfortable sharing some quite intimate details with healthcare professionals and actually might be more open to saying certain things to a robot because you don't have to deal with maybe some of those embarrassment issues. In any sector where automation or AI is mentioned, immediately after the next question is, are people going to lose their jobs to this kind of thing? Do you foresee a time when it is robots, it is AI that is making the final decision and doctors are taken out of the equation? I think it's unlikely that clinicians are taken out of the equation. I think the type of work that clinicians do will change and the way in which we make decisions will change, but that's not new. If we go back in time, we didn't necessarily have certain books or directories to give us recommendations on which medicines to prescribe or not prescribe, and over time we had those. And likewise, the same thing will happen as we go forwards. AI is a big umbrella term. It's everything from data science and machine learning at one end through to artificial and augmented intelligence at the other end. I think what will happen is we'll see optimization in clinical care, we'll see improvements in productivity and efficiency and improvements in outcome as a result of the technology, but ultimately the benefit will come from the adoption in the workforce as we start seeing roles change, skill mix come in and scope change, and an environment where we don't have enough clinicians to treat the population right now, I think it's unlikely that clinicians will be replaced anytime soon. I think most of the utility we've seen so far, or at least a lot of it, is in diagnostics and particularly imaging. So the ability of artificial intelligence to uh, look through images, the ability of a machine to assess lots of different images at once so that it can make a comparison. It's learned from uh, experience in much the same way as a healthcare professional would. With pros and cons to both, so we don't really see it as replacing healthcare professionals, but there are some advantages that those machines don't get tired at the end of the day and have much more capacity than the human eyes and brain that can only look at one or two images at a time. You know, if you think about some examples of application of AI or or these things in healthcare, if I'm having a condition diagnosed and it's just a robot pops out an answer and says, right, you've got this, and then the treatment is you need an operation, you want to know why. You need to have that, and we call it explainable AI, but you need to have that explanation, which a human would naturally give you. Well, I don't understand, doctor. Why is that the case? I've never smoked. How can I possibly have lung cancer or something? And you can have those conversations. So we need to be able to explain the thought process that the AI went through just as much as you could explain the thought process the person went through. So so robots with a bedside manner, basically, is what we're talking about. <laughs> yes, I mean, a bedside manner and, and the capacity to explain what they've done and why they've done it. Is Britain set up to adopt this kind of technology? Because we've seen in the past the NHS try and do something as simple as a database, although, fair enough, not that simple to do at that scale. But even so, it hasn't happened. So are we apt to adopt these even more complicated technologies in our healthcare settings? Well, let's just take the system as a whole, whether it's the NHS or or the other sector as well, the private sector. 
The entire system that we have in the UK philosophically and ethically is set up around the quality of care and safety of patients. We come from a philosophy where safety is the first thing we think of. So that means we might do things at a different pace and rate to other settings. So if we accept the fact that we are all committed to clinical safety, upholding privacy and ensuring that security is maintained, it might mean that the rate and pace of change might be a little bit slower in certain circumstances, but it also means that we get the governance, the regulation right to protect our population. So I can totally see that it might seem frustrating on the one side, but actually if we reflect back on the last 30 or 40 years, we've made considerable gains as society, both in the UK and abroad, where we've influenced other settings to take on board some of the things that have been developed here, not just in digital technology, but other types of medical technology as well. I don't think there is a magic wand that any technology is going to wave and fix everything. What it can do, and I think that really will be transformative of the NHS, is is actually force conversations about doing things differently. The NHS is precious. We all love it. We've all benefited from it. It's a fabulous and unique thing in the world, but it can't stay still. And sometimes that reluctance to change and deal with some of the things that do need to change, because the world is just now different, um, can I think hold it back and there are pockets of great innovation in the NHS don't get me wrong but we need to get more of the NHS thinking about things differently and trying to solve things in different ways and then I think it really will change but it isn't going to be next year everything will be fixed if we just throw a few robots in there that you know unfortunately that's not going to happen. Final question, what are you excited about that's being done in other countries the likes of Israel and the US and also in the Far East too? I think some of the things I've seen in all of those settings is really the adoption of the future technologies. And certainly when I went to Israel, I saw they were really pushing ahead on using devices that patients can use themselves in order to manage their conditions. And effectively, they're dealing with a different type of access issue that we don't necessarily have here. But it means that patients could be much more empowered, but also far more able to manage and control their health. And everything from the use of technology to manage physiotherapy through to technology that helps improve the type of diet that someone might have and even down to the emergency services where they have technology that brings the image of what uh, is on scene directly into a control room which then changes the type of response that takes place. Now they have a different set of problems in Israel compared to the UK but it certainly was an environment where they had a set of problems where very rapidly they came up with solutions and the sorts of things they came up with would take us far more uh, further forwards in the patient direction than we currently are because ultimately we don't really want to have a sort of form of transfer agency. We want people just to control and manage their health themselves. Empowerment isn't even then an issue. It simply becomes a normal thing that patients are in control of their health and they will then consult with the clinician as and when they feel like it. And that's the move we need to get to. And that requires the data infrastructure to be much better, the rules around how the system works to be better, and then the application layer, whether that's physical applications or virtual applications, be made and orientated around the system. No surprise that Sam mentioned there that Israel is right at the forefront. Our experts are part of a UK-Israel health tech forum that we hosted, and among the guests was the company Binar, whose product perfectly illustrates that move to empower patients. 
Hello, my name is Alon, Alon Shemtov. I'm uh, heading globally uh, business development and sales at Bina. Our product is basically based on signal processing and machine learning, very advanced AI technology. We can actually extract your vital sign just by you looking at the camera. On the phone, on a smartphone. On, on, on the phone, any camera. It can be a camera hang on the wall. It can be a smartphone camera. Any camera will do. Will you show me how it works? Absolutely. You can use me as a guinea pig right now. Absolutely. Let's do it now. So now I'm going to open the application. Please look into the frame and uh, uh, you can f move your head freely okay right using deep learning technology we're actually tracking your face uh, as long as you are inside the frame of course so it's like taking a selfie right now i can yeah, see myself on your, it's sort on your of, phone yeah, it opens immediately in a selfie video mode and once we will hit the play then the magic will start <laughs> so basically it's all about light reflection from the skin of your blood vessels and the first reading we are taking which usually comes after eight seconds is your heart rate 88 beats a minute right now 88 beats a minute which you're quite cool i have to say oxygen saturation comes second roughly after 12 seconds whereas respiration will come about 30 seconds okay. within the test itself my oxygen saturation is 94 what does that mean uh, 94 actually you're, you're just normal right it's usually 94 95 and above in order to be considered as normal i'm not level. special you are special for all of us, <laughs> but when it comes to oxygen saturation, you're medium. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, and you see that your heart rate is calming, which is usually, you know, it's like the white coat syndrome, right? When you know you've been measured, your vital signs goes up. This yes. is usually the case. Uh, respiration is eight. It will probably go up uh, soon. And roughly after 45 seconds in the test, we can actually stop the test and you can see a full report of how well you were, you were doing. I think I just saw my stress level is low, which yeah. is a well good Well done, thing. well done. So if you want, I can analyze for you what, what, is, what is your result. Please right? do, Alon, yes. Okay, so let's start with the heart rate. Your, your low was 67 and your high was 92 bytes per minute. And your average was 77, which is quite, it's quite good. Depends on, you know, uh, into the, the situation, it's quite good. I look after myself. I, I exercise. Yeah, yeah. yeah. One, one can see that. And oxygen saturation, indeed, the, the average was 94. And if you will see, we have a supporting table, if you will click the application, which basically says that if you are over 95, it's normal levels. So 94, you're, you're quite good. Uh, respiration, 12. 12 is also what we call normal for an adult. Uh, adult is 12 to 18 for what we call the normal level. Mm -hmm. If we will go to the stress level, this is where it becomes even more interesting. This is your mental stress, not your physical stress. And basically what we do, since we are using or extracting the PPG signal, photoplethmismography, I so, uh, apologize for all the abbreviations. okay. But what we do, we take it remotely. So once we have this uh, sign, we are reconstructing the signal and we are generating heart rate. What is the point of this? Is this an app that people can just download from an app store as normal or is this for healthcare professionals? So both. In most places, we are a B2B company, whereas in, in, in Asia, we are considering becoming a B2C company, meaning that we will sell directly into consumers. How are people responding to this now? Because it, it seems like magic. It seems it's, it, it seems impossible. You stole my line. <laughs> you, seriously, you stole my line. Because what seriously, what I'm, I was about to say is that by some people, come on, it, it, this is magic. It's not technology. So we have a very easy way of showing or proving to people it's not. 
what we do with our prospect customer, we actually send them a demo application. And then, you know, it's as easy as you buy an oximeter, you know, for $5, uh, FDA regulated, and compare it to our results during the test. And then you can see for yourself that it's not magic. It is real. Thanks to Alon for giving me my real readings and a look at the immediate future for health tech, and to Ben, Neve and Sam for discussing the issues that lie slightly further ahead. I'm Matt Barbette, and thanks to you for listening to this episode of The Freudcast. <laughs>